This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballerman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 205, brought to you in association with Smart and the enlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Seth Phillips, CEO and founder of Bound, who are a digital FX broker, quotes, built for the 21st century. Whatever that means, we'll hear later. And they provide FX hedging, an area in passing where fintech has not yet been that active. FX hedging for SMEs, which seems a very good thing, given the amount of FX risk in this crazy economy. So, as you all have heard of the words, FX, that's not a word, but never mind. Ha, it's late in the day. It's, it's gone lunch. Uh, FX, edging, and SMEs. Without further ado, I'll assume you can stick them all three together, have a little bit of idea what we're going to talk about. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Seth. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Happy to be here talking about FX. My favorite word, even though maybe for you it's not a word. <laughs> maybe if you spelled FX like FS in Turkey, FX, it would be, would be a word. Anyway, so we were talking about what we should talk about at the beginning, before we get on to far more fascinating topics like foreign exchange hedging. And we did go through, in passing, sex, religion and politics and <laughs> ideology all at the same time. But whilst that would make no doubt for an even more fascinating topic for the listeners, but perhaps not for yourselves, who are more interested in FX hedging than you're in sex, drugs, rock and roll, politics, etc. But you did mention a couple of episodes before where it was about Scandinavia. And uh, there was I trying to explain to you in a nutshell why Scandinavia was so successful in tech and fintech, having been a very poor area 200 years ago. At which point, fortunately, before I embarrassed myself entirely, you pointed out you'd lived in Helsinki for a few years. So <laughs> I have not lived in Helsinki for a few years, and your knowledge of Scandinavia, therefore, is that much greater. So given that, as we shall know that here when you talk about your career journey, you came from the US of A. How do you find yourself in Helsinki? Did you get a wrong plane or something? Yeah, I mean, the um, performance of Scandinavia in, in, in the tech markets and just how tech markets are today and uh, my life basically outside of my family and personal life revolves around uh, tech, startups and FX. So those are the topics that uh, I talk about most. But I guess there's some overlay there with Scandinavia as, like you said, Mike, I, I spent two years living in and around Helsinki. Funny enough, it was um, for religion. Praise the Lord. <laughs> that's, that's right. So I grew up in Salt Lake City, and I grew up a member of the Mormon church. So if anyone's seen the Book of Mormon play, so I was one of those. So I was a white shirt and a little black name tag, knocking on doors, trying to bring people to Jesus. Yes, it's a long time since people tried to give me to Jesus. <laughs> I was very young at the time, and they failed miserably. But I do remember from the, those days that there was a bit of a... A bit of a makeover in the, uh, in the New Testament. In the, in the Old Testament, God is quite cross and angry and busily kills people left, right and centre. Yeah. Whereas um, in the New Testament, there is this makeover and uh, he's a God of love on that. And just, so either you lose all of, all of your clients in Helsinki or I lose all of my listeners in Finland. <laughs> do you think it was a kind of Old Testament God that was sort of vengeful that sent you to Helsinki? Or do you think it was the, the God of the New Testament who is a God of love and, uh, and therefore sent you to Helsinki? I don't know. I, I, I think... Something in the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably something in the middle. I'm, I'm no longer you know, a part of the, um, of the religion or anything, or anything like that. But I will say, it's, but that's a very standard approach. So all Mormons, when they turn 
essentially after they finish high school, they spend two years out somewhere in the world trying to convert on behalf of the church. And I will say for me, it was, it was a pretty valuable experience, um, even though I look back at it with some conflicted views about you know, what I was doing there, having you know, many years later now left the religion and not being part of that from that perspective. But for me personally, it was quite valuable. It was the first time it took like a, an immature Seth, 18 years old out of high school, which didn't care about anything, didn't think much about anything other than what was going to happen this weekend. And it made me commit to something and work hard for something. I laughed with friends before saying, if I had attended college before that Mormon mission, I probably would have failed out in uh, one or two semesters. But after that experience coming back, I cared about things much more. So it changed me a lot as a person. It was pretty valuable for me as a person, but um, also got to learn Finnish. So if there's any Finns out there, my language skills are probably getting worse and worse as time goes by. But um, I can still, um, as a parlor trick, say hello and ask people how they're doing and, and uh, uh, get by and finish. Oh, brilliant. Well, it's not something that I know very much of. I mean, I did know that there was the Book of Mormon and it was very sort of publicized and all that. But I didn't actually know whether it was on the one hand, uh, again, just talking in black and white characters, a piss take and go oh, look at all these funny people. Or on the other hand, sort of a praise. I think it's the former, not the latter. Ah, okay. I see. It's how funny those people all are. Well, I think the only thing that I knew, going back to being a kid, I think the only thing I knew is that one of the challenges of the faith did seem to be, this is the only thing I knew, which is that somehow Jesus made it over to Salt Lake City, which always seemed a bit strange at the time. I may have completely misunderstood that theological point. But more recently, actually, we've actually found out at home a little bit more in passing about Mormonism, because in terms of having departed the mainstream media and... uh, TV channels, Netflix and all that corporate shite yonks ago. We watch all sorts of things on uh, YouTube and one of the channels we trip over, which is occasionally quite good, is by a chap called Heavy D Sparks Diesel Dave, who are some guys with some enormous beards and sort of biceps wider than my thighs, who've got a, a diesel recovery business based in Utah. And they do these phenomenal recoveries of cranes that have sort of sunk into the mud or something oh, okay. like that. And it's a very good thing to watch. And anyway, so they didn't drink. And they're all very family orientated and, and all that kind of stuff. And at the beginning, we didn't know it was Utah. Yeah. So one day, Bridget and I said, do you think they're Mormons? Yeah. Do you know what a Mormon is? No. Do you? No. <laughs> but then we listened to something the other day. I don't know why, but I listened to all sorts of random podcasts, which are much more interesting than listening to podcasts on the same topic all the time. And there were some interesting things about it, which is that, apart from minor matters about how did Jesus make it so far, that something anomalous really which is that uh, it's very family orientated which is good given whatever what the century petal forces that are sort of tearing america apart and there's something interesting around the fact that the father has kind of a religious role as head of the family or something like that this is kind of a devolved part of the religion apart from other things when you're already like i don't know you give 10 percent of your money to the the church so if you can just sort of reprise your sort of helsinki days um, in less than sort of several hours because we won't talk about the more fascinating topic of fx hedging what would you say to somebody who literally knows next to nothing like me are the sort of the key three things that differentiate mormonism from other sort of brands of uh, christianity yeah well i mean first of all i would say i mean again this is coming from someone who i would consider myself still culturally and like from a background perspective mormon but but not religious anymore but thinking back to those days for the most part it's pretty similar to mainstream christianity so, like, um, the 80% overlap is there uh, with Catholicism or, you know, any of the other, like, um, major Christian groups. But there are a few differences. The first, which you noted a few times, which um, they do believe that uh, Jesus, after he died, appeared to people in the U.S. or in the Americas, in the Western Hemisphere, I should say, and in, in, in the North Central South America. The location's not exact. And taught there for some period of time. But hey, for, for a guy who died and was raised... That wouldn't be a difficult party no. trick. So the bit I don't know, because it is interesting, is, is in which case, and how do I know whether he did or didn't? I mean, I can't prove it either way. Sure, sure. Um, 
But in which case, who over there recorded that fact then? Because the Native Americans didn't have this tradition, did they? So you're you're like um, picking up the breadcrumbs perfectly here for oh, me. Okay, like, uh, you see, you see, <laughs> yeah. this is your salesman salesman act. Before you know it, I'll take out FX hedging before the day's out. <laughs> yeah, perfect, perfect. <laughs> yeah, so the who recorded it? So that is the essence you've ever heard. I mean, the name of the play is the Book of Mormon. So the Book of Mormon literally is a Bible-like book that Mormons believe in, and they believe in the Bible as well. They believe in both. And it is the record of people who were there during that period of time who recorded the history and the events of that. It was lost, and so for hundreds of years that, um, that went unknown. And then that's the, um, that is the founding story of Mormonism. And it was written in English, was it, when it was found? No, it was written in... This is going to be a shout-out to the actual Mormons out there. <laughs> no one else would get this joke, but it's written in Reformed Egyptian. It was the language it was supposedly written in. And then the founder of Mormonism, living in upstate New York, saw a vision, was told where to find the, um, the record that was buried, and so he unburied it and translated it to um, English and published it. That is the essence, that is the founding story of Mormonism. Oh, it's very interesting. Well, again, going back to the days when we still had to do divinity at school, and I was the most virulent critic of Christianity in my year by a long way. But I think, you know, decades later, I view these things differently. At the time, I was sort of very scientific-minded, and it was a question of, is this true or is this false kind of stuff? And if it's not true, it's false. So it was really about treating it as it were, I don't know, like a sort of another science kind of thing. You know, it does one and one equal two. No, no, it equals two. It doesn't sure. equal 17. Sure. But decades later, especially with what we're seeing in the world, and particularly in America, with the centripetal forces that are only encouraged by those people who want to fill their boots and you know, seemingly destroy society, which is flinging everything apart and um, pretty anti-family policies in many countries. One dimension which I failed to appreciate at the time, because I was kind of a, of the view in the 60s and 70s that if only Christianity would go, things would be a lot better, you know, because we could stick with the, with the, quotes, humanist values, unquotes. But that clearly doesn't really seem to work based on the last 40 years. And it was the late Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi over here, listening to him talk on a number of his um, YouTubes, I think, flying around Thailand one year. For some reason, I got into listening to him. I listened to random stuff. It was very clear to me that whatever moral issue happened today, he would relate it to a foundational text. It's like a mast. You know, he's got the point. He always comes back to it. Sure. Which means that over time... Okay, you can move a little bit, but you'd never actually drift away from core principles of core morality. The problem of unrooted humanism or human values is that, you know, the sort of buggers who are trying to inject kids or start wars or whatever can reinterpret all those values. I mean, for example, we were talking a little bit about politics before, let's try, not try and do everything. But in the, the 70s, say, a left wing over here meant a concern for the working classes. Now it's a kind of middle-class concern for wokeism on something. So the meaning of a word can change. So what I now have this perspective, and I think this is where Mormonism perhaps outperforms almost all versions of Christianity, perhaps, I mean, this is orthodox is a different thing entirely, is what is the effect of this belief set, regardless of its sort of logical truth or not, on social systems, on society. on society, and on the family? And I think on that one, and it's literally only just been the last 12 months that I just spotted it by seeing these guys... Well, actually, you, what the effect of that belief set is seems to be extremely pro-social and seems to inculcate in people, going back to 
pre-Christian stuff, Aristotelian virtue ethics and people taking up virtues that the ancient Greeks, long before Jesus came along, would have said, this is really good. So yeah, so there's a, there's a social impact uh, way beyond was the Book of Mormon found or, or did Jesus die in sure, zero or, sure. or why doesn't Luke mention that he was resurrected, maybe he wasn't resurrected and what happened to the other 20 Gospels and all, all that complications. If you can put all that to side, which modern man finds very hard, then you get to the, oh, okay, so what happens in society? Like, what happens to a society when everyone believes in Confucianism? Oh, you, you get this. What happens when they believe in Taoism or the many versions of Buddhism or, or Mormonism? And so, yes, I'm very much of the, sorry, the long rant here, but I'm very much of the view these days that the danger of, as G.K. Chesterton said, the danger of not believing in, in religion is not that you'll believe in nothing, but it's that you'll believe in anything. I mean, wokeism is a good example. Wokeism is turning into a religion for many in America. Sure. I mean, and, and there's some analogies there to my own personal story. Um, and and that, that's the way um, I describe uh, myself even. So I was raised in that, in that community, very conservative religious community. Of course, like most teenagers had a pretty normal... Uh, now, sometimes people com- confuse the Mormons with the Amish. I did not grow up riding horses in a, in a horse and buggy in Pennsylvania, and that's the Amish. And um, the Mormons, although do have a conservative set of religious beliefs, they don't drink, they don't smoke, but go to normal schools, wear normal clothes, things like that. So, so but still a conservative religious community that I grew up in, and um, rebelled during my high school years, teenage years, like most children do, most kids do. And then, um, but then I was really devout for a good decade or a little over a decade from 20 to my early 30s. And like you said, and then when I ultimately left and decided not to, to believe in that like core system of um, beliefs and values, I felt that kind of like an, an, an unmoored boat, essentially like I'd cut my anchor. And, um, and whereas before I uh, couldn't drift far from this, I guess the mast is the word used for it. Now I have to define everything for myself. So what does family mean to me? What does career mean to me? What purposes do I have in life? Those things to me before were prescribed and uh, gave me a very strict priority list, how to spend my time, money, and effort. And all of a sudden I was um, unhinged and had to define all these things for myself. And for a few years at least, but still a like, cascading impact on me moving forward is a, is a question of like, um, how I define those things. So I think your point is true that um, society probably has a similar impact as it like lets go of um, belief structures of any kind. Um, not just religious, but political or anything else. Nationalism as well. Yes, as, as you re- release yourself of any kind of belief structure, then um, you have to define what's new. And then the variability on that is significant. It could be better, it could be worse. And in all regards, I would, as far as like um, my personal experience um, leaving the religious community is like, um, there's probably some good and some bad that come from uh, things that I have lost and things that I have gained. And that's probably true for society too. Absolutely. Well, it's a fascinating topic and we could talk about it for the, the whole podcast. I mean, I'll just, <laughs> just finish with an observation of listening to podcasts by 20-somethings, particularly sort of the dissident circles who I find more interesting these days and a lot of dissidence is based around reaction, which is looking back. Hang on, things have gone a bit shit. Oh, maybe they weren't. Maybe our grandparents had something right after all. Which, after all, is, well, great, great, great grandparents is effectively what was the Renaissance. They looked back to the ancient civilizations of Rome and Greece and said, "Hang on, maybe those guys had something after all." And then, you know, then Europe flourished anew. But what is very clear, just listening to the people on these things, particularly twenty-somethings, is when you can choose everything. When you can choose your religion, when you can choose your gender, when you can choose your politics, when you can choose your job, when you can choose your nationality, when nothing is defined, it's a hell of a lot of work compared to being brought up like our grandparents were, 
well, you know, you're, you're a man, this is what men are like, you're a woman, this is what women are like, you know, you're this, and you stay in this one small society, it's much, much easier than it is today when you've got to choose everything. It's the same thing goes to Amazon. We had a hell of a job. This is true, but it sounds like a joke. It took us, I think, four months to buy suitcases from Amazon a few years ago. Because everything suitcase, by the time it came, has something wrong with it, you know? Whereas if you go to the shop, like when we were kids, there's one suitcase, you buy it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, I would make the argument there that like, um, like the point that I was making before, there maybe there were some in more predefined roles, like you said, um, like predefined and it, when, our, when our grandparents were raised, there were less alternatives, less options to choose, and, and maybe mentally less taxing. Some of the, the, um, the cons of that, though, is that people who didn't fit those very strict molds then are, uh, are stuck. Absolutely. That some of the benefit, the benefit of this opening up might, might um, mean people have to make more decisions, but it also gives people more um, options to find themselves. So there's good and bad. Exactly. I mean, the trouble with that is that you end up with hyper-individuality, where there is no social cohesion. Everyone's just a bunch of homo economicus. But we must move on from this. Uh, <laughs> on to fintech. Fascinating conversation, because the other point as well is there is no system, and there never has been, where there are people who don't fit in. So me having said, I listen to the dissidents. They're the people who have to be careful what they say at work, otherwise they'll lose their job because of the reactionary dissident uh, yeah. views on uh, of various matters. Right, OK, so look, we've had a fascinating conversation about that. I hope it's given the audience one or two things to say. Uh, as a result of which, um, let's just briefly blast through your career journey from um, praising the Lord in Helsinki to FX hedging today. Yeah, sure. I'll try to be succinct here. So basically, moved back to Salt Lake City um, just to do my undergraduate degree. Really got involved in startups pretty early. So um, built and sold my first startup while I, while I was doing my undergraduate degree. Sold that company. It wasn't like a big, you know, by modern standards, like a big tech exit. But for me, as like a 22-year-old, it was great. So sold that business and then finished my undergraduate degree, started another startup. That um, startup went okay. It turned in kind of to a small lifestyle business. Wasn't the um, By this point, I had caught my ambition and wanted to do something big and significant. And that, that company wasn't going to turn out to be that, even though it was a nice little small business. So I sold that to a couple of my employees to move on. Did graduate school at Columbia University in New York. That's when I moved to New York City. And then worked for a fintech venture capital fund for a little bit in New York City during and after my um, graduate degree. And then spent five and a half years at a fintech company called Paxos, involved in the crypto space, part of their management team and helped them um, grow. And that company has gone on to be extremely successful. They're probably, they're worth billions now. And, and I was sent to London to open up their UK and European operations. So I came here about four and a half years ago after working for them for a couple of years in New York City. They sent me to London. We built and hired a team here. And that's where I met my co-founder as well, Dan. And then, and then we left Paxos about a year and a half ago, something like that, a little bit less than that, to start working on Bound. I see. And so what was it that led you to put the abbreviation in my context and the word in your context, FX, <laughs> and the word hedging together and go, I know what we'll do. We'll do FX hedging. How exciting must that be? Or did you both sort of, did one of you bring the FX word and the other bring hedging? I mean, I'm always curious, going back to the ancient Greeks, their idea about gift from the muse. Where do these ideas come from? Because suddenly it appears in your head or maybe it evolves. Yeah, of course, it's, and it's evolved over time. But the basic catalyst, I think there's a couple points. One is my co-founder Dan and I were both American expats living in the UK in like a post-Brexit era. So currencies were going wild. We saw the pound kind of lose a lot of its value against the dollar over a couple of years. And so 
me and Dan both sending money back to the U.S. for investments and other purposes, um, we saw like a sharp decline in that. So we were kind of personally impacted. And then one of the projects we, the two of us worked on and, and a handful of other people worked on at Paxos was a project for commodities and FX hedgers. So these are big multinational corporations, huge mining operations, banks, trading houses, who were oftentimes hedging hundreds of millions or billions of dollars against the price of silver or gold, which is part of their manufacturing process, and they have like major exposures to, to these things. So we were building software for them. And then the third thing that kind of really brought this all into focus is um, my co-founder, Dan, um, which is originally his idea to, to, to start this business. And... Um, he, his dad is a, um, an importer in New York City. He imports like kitchen cabinetry, which is manufactured in Europe. So he essentially sells things and makes US dollar revenue, but his costs are all in Euro. So um, when he signs a contract, um, it takes about a year to build, complete any project. And um, during the course of that year, he can see his profits um, expand because the exchange rate goes in his favor, or he can see his profits evaporate because the exchange rate goes against him over the course of that year. And Dan and I essentially came away from this and saying, hey, given our personal experience and our professional experience working with people who know how to hedge, can we take some of that learning and make it easier for companies like his dad's? And that's the story. Excellent. So you mentioned silver going back in history, as I mentioned the podcast before, a few centuries ago, the money markets grew up in London, grew up in the city, actually, more precisely, grew up in the city because the East India Company needed to get Spanish doubloons or whatever they were, the silver currency that uh, you could trade around the world with. I mean, there was a, a global currency then, silver. Yep. You turn up in India and they quite happily take your silver and you know, give you some cloths to take back home. So in those days, really, the foreign exchange issue as such didn't exist because everything was kind of mapped onto silver. We had Glint on the show uh, a few episodes ago talking about gold and we've talked about the dollar this year. And 1973, I think, when uh, Nixon and America temporarily went off the gold standard. And I think you're still temporarily off the gold standard, as, <laughs> as are we. After which the printing presses have run hot and the currency has uh, inflated the roof. COVID hasn't helped uh, government spending? No, the government's response to COVID definitely hasn't uh, helped. I think Sweden's doing it quite okay, actually. Uh, and uh, Russia's debt to GDP doesn't seem too bad, but let's leave that politics angle to one side. In the UK, I've forgotten, but it's something like it was only about 1978 that there was sort of freedom of foreign exchange, you know, to actually exchange it with sort of for foreign money because the gold standard had done that before. And uh, if we talk about the 80s, I'll pass over to you soon. When I was doing fixed income at Climates, one of the things I did was advise a major oil company on hedging its dollar risk to, to other countries around the world. And they go, oh, yeah, I think that makes sense. And then they would go away and, quotes hedge. So they would take out futures or options and get the size they were. They could call us or they could call another few mega banks and say, we've got a gazillion dollars to hedge. You know, what's the futures? What's the options? What's the swaps? What's the, what's the whatever? Yeah. So mega companies have pretty much since the end of the gold standard, really, been able to hedge themselves by calling mega bank. So that market's been there for ages. Yeah. So maybe in terms of your SME focus, you can tell me how it's been for SMEs over recent decades. Not as easy and not as cheap, I suspect. Yeah, and, and I think there's a couple of things there about about um, FX hedging. You know, kind of the difference between like um, hedging. I, I don't really like the word hedging very much, but it, but it is the industry um, that is the the appropriate word. But just to take a, a quick moment to describe kind of like what hedging is for. A lot of foreign currency companies or businesses, um, and there's tons of startups in this space as well. Deal with like international payments. So I have pounds today and I need euros today, um, and I want to make sure I get a good exchange rate. Bound does that. So so do 
lots of other companies and there's lots of people working on different innovative ways to, to make that better. Where hedging comes in, it's a little bit different. It's analogous, it's adjacent to that problem, but it is when someone's caring about what, what we call forward risk. So it's not so much that I care about today's exchange rate, I care about the exchange rate tomorrow or next week or next month or in a year or, or in two years. And, and so I'm looking out ahead and saying, it's not about getting a good exchange rate today. It's about um, making sure these rates don't get away from me in six months because I'm gonna have a big project that I have to pay for in six months and I don't want the cost to jump up by 10%. So it's all about this forward risk, thinking like, I'm worried about the exchange rates and where they're going to be in the future. Or rather vice versa. I've got a business and I'm busy enough doing my business and I could do that really well, but if in 10 months time the bloody foreign exchange market's gone the wrong way, they're gonna wipe out my profits. Correct, so, yeah. It's interesting what word you prefer yourself to rather than hedging, because that the actual process that people are trying to do in business by and large, um, apart from when they get it wrong, is remove a, a risk to something which isn't a core component of their business and they'd rather didn't exist. Correct. Life yeah. would be simpler if your dad doesn't have to worry about the dollar. Yes. What does he care about that? He's doing his kitchen business. Correct. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So thinking about this forward risk and not having to worry about that. And you're right. So if you are a huge, like the clients that, that um, uh, we had at our old company that we were building, these professional hedgers, you know, a huge mining company literally employs full-time staff to study the price of, let's say it's gold, to study the price of gold, where it's been, where it's going, where should we bet. They use complex financial instruments to say like, if it goes up this much, we're willing to bear that kind of volatility. But if it goes beyond this, let's buy a financial instrument or some package of financial instruments that protects us in case of like extreme movements or something like that. So then you have these professionals that um, have access to that. First of all, it takes a lot of know-how, a lot of understanding, and to your point, a relationship with the bank that provides those kinds of services, which are generally very high touch. Hey, if you are a Ford Motor Company, you've got a no problem getting a great relationship with um, multiple banks uh, to provide to custom you know, white glove service um, to your business because you are worth hundreds of millions of dollars to their bank every year, something like that, um, uh, you know, some huge number. But smaller companies, generally speaking, don't have the expertise or time internally to study forward risk, to think about where the dollar pound is going to go, nor do they have access to different kinds of hedging strategies and, and systems in the financial products. Because it's such a high-touch service that's generally provided by the banks, the banks generally can't reach down very far, meaning it becomes unprofitable. Once someone's doing less than you know, 50 million a year, I mean, even 100 million, it's probably like um, hard for the banks to make much money on a company's FX. And so you start to get down to smaller businesses and um, the banks can't profitably serve them. So they just, they don't or don't serve them very well. And it's not a question of them being good or bad or whatever. It's just a question of like, it doesn't make money for them to reach down market very far. So presumably, enter technology as the way of squaring the circle. Yeah, it's, it's trying, trying to, I mean, and that's what Bound is trying to do, of course, is trying to solve that. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that um, we've talked about here a little bit about this kind of, you mentioned in your introduction about hedging, um, not being very accessible to these SME markets. And it's for both of those reasons. One, most of the SMEs don't have time to develop the expertise. And two, the products out there for them are tough, are tough to reach. Yes, and let's look at that point then from the perspective of an SME who, for the sake of argument, is in a, in, a, in a kitchen furniture business. The chances are that they don't have a background in financial services uh, and therefore it's a little bit unclear and they can all too easily, and I think this is where mega banks do provide the service to, to mega companies, is it's all too easy to do the wrong thing. 
So again, just as being simplistic about it, let's say I've got some potential income stream in a year's time. I can take out an option, which is kind of an insurance. I'll give you a call and say, hey, Seth, I've got this uh, payment in euros. It's coming in in a year's time. I'm not too worried about the exchange rate, but blimey, if it fell 10%, I'd be absolutely gutted. Yeah. What's it going to cost me to insure myself against a 10% fall? And that's fine, and that works very well. But the trouble with that is that every year you end up paying an insurance cost for it. Sure. These costs can mount because, again, without getting into FX subtleties of arithmetic, you know, the, the, the price of that insurance is obviously related to the chance of it happening, which is related to the volatility and FX volatility is always changing and a whole bunch of stuff. Yep. At which point, you know, unless you're down to say using as an example, unless you're sort of sophisticated in financial services, starts to glaze over and uh, 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 wonder what you're talking about and you know, the quickest hand to see the eye. So that's one way. There's also a futures market where you can not just buy sterling today, as it were, or dollars or whatever it is, but you can do it for 12 months time. And then the problem with that is that, let's say I've got a million bucks coming in in a year's time, and say, oh, I've got a million bucks coming in a year's time, then okay, I'll sell a million bucks today. But the problem you've then got with doing it the futures avenue is that you probably aren't going to get precisely a million a year's time. It might not come at all, at which point you've just taken out a huge foreign exchange position, or it might be half, or it might be double, and then you're all over the show. So Correct. Look, if you and I were going to set up a business and do something that involved this, we'd have some quite some conversations between ourselves, knowing quite a lot about this stuff, about what's the right way of doing it, let alone some poor sod in an SME who's got some app on his phone. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because like, if you are hedging, um, one of the common mistakes in hedging is actually is over-hedging. I think I'm going to get a million dollars in a year, so I'm going to... I'm going to put a trade in place to like um, to lock in the dollar rate for a year. But at the end of that year, if it's a forward or future contract, something like that, I need to make good on that transaction. And then if, if let's say that million dollars doesn't come, the c- complete project falls through, I'm still on that hook for that. Um, and maybe the rate moved against the trade. So by trying to eliminate my FX risk, I created a bunch of FX risk uh, in the wrong direction. So th- those are all like very common pitfalls of hedging. And what results is is that most companies, particularly SMEs, just don't do anything. It's complicated. Keep the fingers crossed. Yeah, and because there is risk involved if I do this incorrectly. Plus, it's like, who has time for this? You know, we've found it's um, almost universal. Like, um, if you start to talk to somebody, we talk to, like, startup company CFOs, for example, and, and ask them about, like, hey, how are you managing? Which is very common for these, for these startups to have um, significant FX risk. You know, a lot of venture capital raised, even in Europe and in the UK, is U.S. dollars because venture capital markets are primarily USD. And that's true for our own business as well. We raise our, our financing in U.S. dollars, so we have a big pile of USD, but we're spending primarily in GBP and euros. We use that example. We use like um, another a typical example. You could have you know, fintech startups here in, in London who um, charge their fees, their monthly SaaS fees um, for their subscription services in U.S. dollar for international clients. And so they have the stream of U.S. dollar coming in. And generally speaking, if that business is doing under $100 million in revenue, no one there is even really thinking about how to manage that risk, but it's significant. We saw dollar pound move, what, 12% this month or something like that. If you told someone, hey, there's a 12% hit to your revenue or a 12% boon to your revenue, that's a huge win or a huge loss. And let's just put this in, in, in more personal retail perspective just to get it home to people. It's a bit like saying to somebody, 
next month your salary is going to go up or down 10%. Do you care about it? Yeah. Yes. Because it's especially sort of, you know, new joiners, the workforce in London are paying a huge fortune in rent and they're probably, if they're lucky, breaking even. Oh, yeah. It goes down 10%. So these things are very painful. Well, the interesting thing is, is me having sort of just lobbed the word tech in because I've heard of tech before and it's supposed to solve every problem overnight, et cetera, et cetera. And wondering over the years why it is that sort of fintech approaches certain categories of financial services, one after the other, after the other, after the other. I think going back to the model of Megaco is that they need service from a bank, not just a price. So that the reason that TransferWise and all that lot came around some time ago, because they just did FX here and now and you press a button and it's changed it and other people did the same thing. So you don't need much advice on that, you know, for the sake of argument, you're going on holiday, you need a couple of thousand euros, I need a couple of thousand euros, you go into a shop, you pay your, your sterling in and you get the, the euros out, so that's fine. But presumably one of the things that's held the growth of fintech FX hedging businesses back is the challenge that it a, requires a bit of sophisticated selling, which is going to cost something, and it B, kind of requires some advice or, uh, or, or education, whether it's in-app or whatever, about the most appropriate way of hedging in certain circumstances, and then a bit of education about, well, look, be careful, you don't you see, leave yourself with residual risk you didn't even have in the first place, yeah. uh, before you get to the bit where you've got a nice app or online portal or whatever it is, you can tell us about that later, where it's got a really jolly nice cost for one year, you know, dollar sterling hedging on it, and you just press the button and you, you get that. So there's these different components, different dimensions of the problem, which I thought make it quite challenging, and which is why it's 2022, and I'm, it's the first time I'm talking to somebody about FX hedging in, in fintech. Yes, and, and, and you're right, and, and you know, people, people ask us all the time, like, when so many financial services have been, like, attacked by the startups, international payments and, you know, stock trading with eToro here in Europe and, and Robinhood in the U.S. and Stripe doing credit card payments and processing and, you know, all these startups who have gone off like slivers of financial services and, and how come no one's gone after hedging even though it's like big and valuable. And I just think there's not very many people who are familiar with tech and, and building a tech company who have like experience hedging. It is a very specialized area of finance. And, and like you said, it's it's complicated. It's relatively easy to say like, hey, I have pounds today and I need euros. I'm going to check a few places and see what the best rate is. A much more complicated question is, is today the day that I should exchange my currencies? Because maybe today's the worst day of the month and I can check 15 online platforms and, and pick the one that has the best, but maybe today's the wrong day. That is fundamentally like a more complex question. No one can predict the future. We can't predict the future. No one can predict the future. So how do you start to think about that question? It's like, when should I actually do this? Because that's the difference between not like a fee of you know, $500 at one provider and a fee of $650 at another provider. That's the difference between like 5%. 7%, 2%, 3%, much larger, you know, rather than a fraction of 1%, multiple percentage points. And so, you know, that's what hedging is for, is to start to think about, like, um, when and how I protect myself from these movements rather than just how I get the best rate in a moment. Okay, so as there aren't many firms doing this, and as you and your chums have spent a little bit of a time thinking about this over the last 18 months or so, what is Bound's approach to this, should we say, two sides of the coin, which is that if I'm an SME and I ain't FX market savvy, I need a little bit of advice. I mean, the first is, hey, have you thought about doing this? Well, no, not really. The second is, what do I do? There's the advisory component. And only when they've got that sufficiently do you flip it over and say, well, look, here's the price, or, or, or we're brokers, and, and actually the 17 prices in the market, and this is the best price. So how are you merging in bound the kind of 
advice slash consultancy bit with and the price is A or B or C and I'd choose the lowest one if I were you. Of course, that's something we, we pay attention to and, and you know, FCA regulations and, and things like that um, dictate the kind of level of, of advice you can give to a customer. And so th there are like uh, things we need to be careful of that we're not too prescriptive with customers or anything like that. They need to make the decision what's best for their business. But what we generally try to do, or what Bound generally tries to do is come up with Strategies, of course, like we want people to be able to get a good exchange rate if they're exchanging currencies today or next week or next month. But what we try to do is, is have simple strategies that mirror a company's cash flow. So, for example, I use this example of like a startup who raises their venture capital financing in U.S. dollars. So you raise in U.S. dollars, but you're going to spend primarily, your team's going to be based here in the U.K., and you're going to spend primarily in GBP. There's a couple ways you could manage, whether you want it or not you have significant FX risk. Maybe you just raised a $5 million seed round or a $10 million, $20 million Series A. You have a lot of FX risk, whether you want to have it or not. And if you want to just convert everything the day you get fin financing, that's fine, but you're really taking a view on that day's rate. I just average it in. I just deal once a month for 10 months and get the average of it. And so, you can, so, so you can make one payroll per month, one payroll yeah. payment per month. What we try to do is just present people with simple off-the-shelf kind of best practice strategies saying do you want a high-risk strategy a low-risk strategy or kind of a middle strategy how urgently do you need your cash converted like so you provide a consultancy service then? it's not a consultancy service it's more just like a hey if your if your cash flows look like this if this is kind of like what your FX exposure looks like here are some strategies that people use kind of explained in a simple way and they can say hey strategy number two I think is like the right one for me and that's our goal as our, as our product they can say, hey, strategy number two works the best for me, and then it can, it can run for them and kind of manage that exposure for them. And so to give them some guidance and best practice, I think our goal, we can never promise that the rate's gonna move in your favor. We, we can't do that, like in, no one else can. If we could predict where the rates were gonna go, we would be on a beach doing a hedge fund. But what we can do is make it simple to be thoughtful about the risks that, you're ha that, you're risks that your companies have. And you've got bigger things to worry about, but you don't wanna be thoughtless here because it can cost you a lot. So just picking a simple, thoughtful strategy, and so you know how that risk is being managed. That's, that's our goal. I see. Okay, so we'll hear a little bit more about Bound in a minute, about how you deliver these services and how SMEs come across you and experience you and interact with you, whether it's an app or a portal or telephone line or, or whatever. So in terms of the future, which we normally end this section with, the future is being made right now by the sound of it. And so presumably it's just increasing the ability via fintech of serving SMEs in this complex FX hedging market, which is far more complex than just doing spot. Yeah, I mean, I think the future, our future, our dream, of course, would be that right now, most SMEs ignore their FX risk. I think that what, what the ideal future would be like is their FX risk is controlled and managed, but it doesn't take a lot of time for them to do that. They're not willing to invest the time to fix it. Um, that's why they don't do it today. This is the big question is, can fintech companies like Bound or others, can we provide solutions for these companies that make it easy enough that all that risk they have out next month, two months, six months out in the road, that's managed properly without them needing to commit a lot of time to it? Excellent. Well, that sounds fairly sensible to me. And it's very much in the pattern that any new sector starts with the, the low-hanging fruit and the, the simple-to-reach stuff, the, the things you can reach by standing there. And then after a while, you need a bit of a step ladder, and it's more complex, and there's much more of an evolution in the, in the sub-marketplace to be able to doing these things uh, nice and uh, simply and 
the less it is a, a transaction and the more that it requires um, understanding. And that's added a dimension of complexity as it is. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there, my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Seth, we've touched on Bound, what you're doing here and how you're seeing it in terms of these scenarios. I think one thing that uh, it's not clear to me and perhaps the listeners is if I'm an SME, what does Bound look like? Are you an app? Are you a website? Are you a phone number? Are you a, are you a chat box? How do you interface with SMEs? Yeah, I mean, the easiest, the easiest thing to do is just go to bound.co. And yeah, you can, you can get instant access to the platform where you can chat with one of our salespeople. Kind of the easiest way that, that um, for you to interact is. And then primarily, you would just interact with the system through an online portal. There's live chat support and, and obviously salespeople that are there as well um, to pick up the phone if there's, um, if there's questions. That's how people primarily interact with us. And then I would just say that, you know, if there are SMEs or, or particularly like we know the startup sector really well since we are a startup. And so that if there are startups that, again, raise your venture capital in one currency, then you have you spend primarily operationally in another currency. If you have significant international SaaS revenue, USD international SaaS revenue that you're dealing with and just converting as you get it in, or if you are a company with significant international payroll, you know, you have like a engineering office in, in, in Poland and you need to buy Polish Lotti every single month to make your payroll, things like that. Those are circumstances that it's really easy to, for Bound to help with and um, can help make you more thoughtful of those. Or if you're just any business, an SME that's thinking about how a, an exchange rate move in, in the future can affect your, uh, impact your business, then, um, yeah, we'd love to talk to you. And you can just go to bound.co and, and, um, and reach out that way. And, of course, like every tech company, although... Maybe this trend is reversing now as we hear about layoffs every day from major tech companies. We're always um, looking for talent across the board. People with FX experience in, in um, sales and, and customer and expertise there. And then, of course, engineering teams to um, build and make our product better. Excellent. Well, that's a very clear exposition. It is a very important topic. And I think getting away from the word hedging, another, another way of reframing it is that all sorts of businesses are running unwanted foreign exchange risks. And like many things in life, there are enough risks that you want to run or have to run that it's quite good if you can eliminate others. I take out house insurance because I don't want to be worried about the house burning down. If I didn't have it, then I'd have to be, take all sorts of precautions, which would take me away from the day job. So it's a very important uh, job you're doing out there. And I wish you and all the other bounders, ha-ha, see what I did there, every success in the future. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Tom acts so dead and the
so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.